Good morning. It is Tuesday, April 7th, and this is Community Pulse, your grassroots report on the coronavirus outbreak here in mid-Missouri. Community Pulse airs exclusively here on KOPN, and you can find it later on in the day at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Joining me once again today is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters, which airs every Wednesday at 6 p.m. on KOPN. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thank you once again for joining us as you do every weekday morning. Good morning, Tim, and good morning to Columbia. Um, It is uh, my honor to be able to uh, ground myself in this uh, topic once a day and then maybe uh, move on and do some other things for the day. So to start off, we usually start with numbers, which we have uh, repeatedly said, who knows what they really are, but we You know, we do know that uh, we're trying really hard to do case definition. We're going to talk a little bit about counting and how we know it's a case and all of that. But right now, the world has 1.3 million documented cases uh, with 20,000 deaths. Oh, I'm sorry, 20,000 new cases, 76 deaths and uh, 285,000 recovered. The United States has 370,000 cases, so about one out of three, or between one out of three and one out of four cases in the world happen in the United States, and that is um, more than what our population is. Uh, It's an increase of 1,000 over the last uh, 24 hours, and we've had 11,000 deaths with 16,000 recovered. In Missouri, we have close to 3,000 cases and um, 65 deaths. Uh, 70% of the counties in Missouri are are reporting cases. Boone County still is reporting 76 cases, but um, I'm, I'm curious about that. It seems that Boone County cases seem to stay stable for a couple of days and then jump up by 5 to 10. So I wonder whether that has to do with um, uh, how uh, lab tests are being reported. Still only one death in Boone County. Um, And I also wanted to talk about um, testing. So the United States has done 1.9 million tests, and that's 5,000, almost 6,000 tests per million population compared to Germany, which has done almost 11,000 per million. Switzerland has done 19,000 per million and Norway has done 20,000 per million. So we, um, we could be, be doing better. And I understand those are um, countries with uh, smaller populations. They're also countries with smaller budgets and smaller impact on the world uh, uh, geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps countries yeah. with socialized healthcare in some cases. Yeah, the the access to testing, I don't think is really, like, in my little microcosm, it does not appear that access to testing has anything to do with payment, although that may be happening in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Testing is free um, in, uh, in Boone County. Okay. So people are not being charged for the testing. They're in, maybe I shouldn't say it's free. Insurance companies are being charged. Uh, they, the um, university and Boone and Genetrate are committed to not charging mm-hmm. individuals for testing. So I'm hoping that there isn't anybody who's not getting tested because they're afraid of the cost of the test. Now, there may be some people who are afraid of getting tested because they don't want to be hospitalized and they're afraid of the cost of hospitalization. So there's that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I know this morning we... We always begin with the numbers, but we wanted to talk about the the numbers themselves and the focus on it. Um, I know every yeah. morning when I wake up, 
I look at the news and you can't help but look at the numbers, uh, not just the m- amount of cases, the amount of deaths, but there's also the stock market numbers, the number of unemployment. Um, there's, right. this, there's this focus on, on the numbers and um, I, th- I think... And if we could, mm-hmm. yeah, if, if at the same time we measured as they were reading it, measured people's blood pressure and pulse and respiratory rate, we'd be noticing those things would probably be going up as well. And that kind of fear has a negative impact on our immune system and certainly a negative impact on our happiness and our access to peace. So um, I think it's important to pay attention to what's going on um, and then to... Um, move on with living your life in a way that helps you um, uh, live with uh, the what joy and peace is available. So, you know, you talked about riding your bike in this morning, and I was able to go for a walk, and the robins and the squirrels are going about their day as if it's a normal spring. Right. They don't know about the numbers that are reported every morning. Um. No, they don't. <laughs> So one of the things that has been a concern, it seems to be being expressed on social media among people um, who I'm connected with, is a concern, again, this persistent concern that maybe we're overreacting, that maybe this is not something that's that serious, and that maybe when, when we see these numbers, that they're really not based on reality and that people are, or that there is a little bit of reality and it's being overblown and we're... Um, losing our economy and our rights uh, for no good reason. And that's not the position I hold. I think anybody who's been tuning into this knows that. And so I just went looking about, for example, there was a a chart that I've seen posted on Facebook showing the cases of pneumonia in the United States decreasing. So these cases are not being blamed on pneumonia or influenza. They're being blamed on COVID. And the question is, are we just are are we is this just typical that people die of pneumonia all the time and now we're just calling it all covid and we're all upsetting ourselves for no good reason and i thought well you know that's a legit question and again i am no in, no expert in this but um the experts seem to be really upset about it and i'm i've been just trusting them and i thought well i'm going to just go look a little bit so according to the centers for disease control um, in 2018, there were 59,000 pneumonia and influenza deaths in the United States, and that was up a little bit from 2017. Uh, we might have had a worse flu season, or maybe um, people are just less healthy or something. Um, but 59,000 um, deaths uh, from pneumonia and influenza in the United States in a year means that a little bit more than 1,000 um, are dying per week of pneumonia and influenza. And this time of year, we should be tapering down. It should be a little bit lower because this is usually the end of our influenza season. So we would think that that number would be high. I didn't look at those graphs, but I would just presume that those numbers would be a little higher in, say, November through February and then lower the rest of the year. But if we said that, no, it's it's about 1.3 thousand, um, 1,300 cases a week, um, there were 7,000 deaths in the last week from COVID in the United States. So something is happening that's different than what is typical. Mm-hmm. And and this was like how we even knew that this was happening was that there was an atypical thing happen- that started happening in Wuhan in November, December last year, that a an astute physician noticed that, dang, there are just more people that act like they've got flu, but then they get really sick in a particular way, go on ventilators, and we've just got way more 
than we usually do. And I think he noticed it when it was like six or seven or eight and began to speak about it. Now, sadly, he was mistreated by the government and ended up dying from uh, COVID disease himself. Um, but, uh, you know, and so that sparked a lot of concern that the Chinese weren't being honest with their numbers. And, and that's a that's a legit question. The numbers since then seem to have followed a pattern that would be predictable. So if they're if they're fudging their numbers, they're doing it in a way that is consistent with the way um, these kinds of things spread. Um, and something really unusual, remarkable, interesting, out of the ordinary happened in Wuhan, where they ended up building two two thousand two one thousand bed hospitals. Within, I think, two weeks, a week. I mean, it would have taken us longer than that just to have come up with some ideas of a plan. Um, and then they filled those up. So in a city which typically, you know, has a hospital that, you know, meets the needs of people, however it does, suddenly they needed to increase that capacity by 2,000 hospital beds. And so that means something was different. And it was different in a remarkable way that I don't think you could fabricate. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, uh, so then there's been this question about um, whether we're overcounting cases. Because one of the things that's happening is we're, <clears throat> we're testing, uh, we're doing what we call post-mortem testing. So if a person dies, um, and uh, so a person dies, they may be tested um, in as a part of an autopsy or a, a treatment of the, the dead body. So this, uh, and you can argue about whether that's the way, best way we should use our tests. But people may have died in a way that was presumed to be unrelated to this to this uh, COVID disease. And then um, they're tested, and then that case gets counted as a death associated with COVID. And um, I just want people to know that, first of all, death certificate data is um, problematic for a gazillion reasons. And any time you read an article where we're quoting death certificate status, if you look down deep enough, somebody will be saying, yeah, but it's death certificate data, and that isn't the most accurate. So first of all, we all know that the way deaths are coded on death certificates is not 100% uh, reflective of reality. And the other thing I want to say is that we just don't want to miss any cases, and we don't want to miss any patterns. So people are going to – so there's the cause of death, and then there's the things leading up to the cause of death. So there's four or five lines underneath that. So if somebody, say, died of a of a aneurysm in their aorta, then underneath that would be atherosclerotic disease that – the disease that happened that led up to that. And, you know, underneath that might be hypertension. So it might get coded as a hypertension death. Anyway, it's, it is a little bit more complicated than just a word gets put on the death certificate. And then that's presumed to be the only reason that person died. So we may be doing a little bit of overcoding um, for the people who die in hospitals. But the problem is there are going to be some deaths that happen at home. And those people may not have gotten tested. They may not have gotten health care. And we don't want to miss those deaths, deaths if we can. So um, there's a risk of undercoding and overcoding. And that really needs to get sorted out down the line. But we need to get as much data as we can on the death certificate while people still remember and, while honestly, while the people who are caring for them are still alive. Right. Does that make any sense, Tim? Yeah, yeah, that, may, that makes complete sense. Um, I know these numbers are, are, for the most part, an estimation, but we want that estimation to be as accurate as possible with as much data behind it 
um, as we can have. Now, yeah, and I mm-hmm. also we also want to cast a wide net, and we want to include everybody who might be a COVID-related death in that net initially, so that when things calm down and we can go through them more carefully, we won't have left anybody out of being considered a COVID-coded death. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Now, now one yeah. thought that, that occurred to me over the past few days is with all this social distancing, um, I know you were talking about the pneumonia cases changing. Um, will this affect say, um, other common flu cold cases, you know, if we're all being socially distant now, will that reduce, will that affect uh, the regular influenza because of um, our isolation at this time? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So all of the summer colds and spring colds, we should be seeing fewer of those. And so this social distancing may have some, um, it's kind of, I know it's got some costs. I'm not trying to smite that at all. I'm feeling it. We're all feeling it. but yeah, I say I have seen again. I didn't go down this rabbit hole, but I have seen reports that influenza deaths were also down in Wuhan. Now, is that because everybody just cut coded as a COVID death? I don't know, but it would be expected that the same social distancing that we're doing for to prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2 would also reduce the spread of influenza virus and all the other coronaviruses and you know, intestinal bugs and all of that, too. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Elizabeth, if you'd like this morning, I'd like to, to pivot a little bit. Um, one thing yeah. that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the aftermath of the pandemic, um, not just how the, the path out of this would look, but, but uh, to pull back to a bigger picture, what do we want life after this to look like? Will there be fundamental shifts for the generation that is living through this? Um, I just wanted to open yeah. that up. and uh, Those are beautiful questions. Mm-hmm. So I, I read in the New York Times this morning that, that um, researchers have outlined some official markers for when we can begin to reopen public spaces and, and bring life back to normal. They outlined uh, four different points, and I just want to go over those real quickly and, and maybe yeah. we can comment on those. So the, the first point... Um, that we would like to get to to reopen public spaces and to start bringing life back to normal is that hospitals must be able to safely treat all patients requiring hospitalization without resorting to crisis standards of care, which is what we are seeing in New York City and many other places around the world right now. So that would mean that we have adequate beds, adequate ventilators, adequate staff, adequate PPE equipment. Um, So that is sort of a number one baseline. Um, Number two... Um, The researchers say that authorities must be able to test everybody who has symptoms and to get reliable results quickly. So for the U.S., that would mean more than 750,000 tests a week. Now, I don't think we are quite there yet either on this point. No. Um, But uh, we are working towards that. Uh, Their third point is that health agencies must be able to monitor confirmed cases, trace contacts of the infected, and have at-risk people go into isolation or quarantine. Um, the tracing contacts part can be very complicated. Um, yes. C- can you provide yeah. some insight uh, on perhaps how that works in practice, Elizabeth? Yeah, I, I'm not a public health person, and um, I haven't ever done it before, but um, especially when something is spread by aerosols, Um, you know, where the tiny little particles that hang in the air for half an hour to three hours after you've 
talked or breathed or coughed or sneezed in a space, even through a mask. So these masks that we have are catching the big stuff, but not the tiny droplets and, you know, slowing things down. It's better than nothing, but not as good as staying out of the space in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, That then you would need to, you know, say where you'd gone and when you thought you'd gone there. And I don't know about the rest of you. I have a hard time remembering sometimes what I had for breakfast, much less where I was in the last three days, because we think you're you're potentially shedding virus for three days before you become symptomatic. Um, And then you need to remember the times you were there, and then they need to find all the people who were there at that time and test them. Um, And then, gosh, I've heard somebody quoting Anthony Fauci as having said that as many as 50% of people who are infected with this are asymptomatic. And I don't know whether he means asymptomatic like they just never get symptoms, but they shed it for a week or so. Or do they? Does that mean that during you know they're only they only have the symptoms for three or four days, but they also were asymptomatic for three or four days? So that makes it even harder if there are there's asymptomatic spread. That mm-hmm. is, people who feel well are still spreading the virus. So it that can that is difficult. Although and it means it is so tricky to try to preserve privacy. And um, trace uh, contacts. Yeah. So yeah. so back to back to this list. The fourth point um, for when we might know when it's safe to reopen public spaces and to begin to bring life back to normal would be that there must be a sustained reduction of cases for at least fourteen days uh, because it can take that long for symptoms to appear. So, so those four points, again, are hospitals must be able to treat people effectively and not be in crisis mode. Authorities must be able to test everybody who has symptoms and get reliable results quickly. Health agencies must be able to monitor confirmed cases and have at-risk people go into quarantine. And there must be a sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days. Um, yeah, these are, these are no small thing. And I... Um I want to say that, you know, hospitals, include, you know, one of the things we need to do is have hospitals begin to be able to do these non, non-urgent procedures. So, you know, some of the things that people are not getting done is, you know, say, a mastectomy for breast cancer or uh, the next phase of their chemotherapy or getting a bypass surgery. I mean, some of them, some of those things are happening, but we're really having to decide whether, wow, can we put it off for a month or two or three or four or five? And um, the burden on the people who are not getting their non-essential, non-urgent, you know, and then like all of the things like a hip replacement or a knee replacement. The other thing that we really need to realize is that we're going to have to come up with these methods of caring for the people who've recovered that don't continue to expose other people. So you may be sick enough that you went to the hospital. Now you still have symptoms. You're not sick enough to need hospitalization anymore. And now you're, you need to come home. What if your family, your household contains a really vulnerable person? We, we, you know, many people leave the hospital and go to a nursing home and we've seen how, um, how dangerous uh, this virus is in a nursing home. And so we're probably going to need to begin to designate some nursing homes as places for people with the infection and other nursing homes as places for people without the infection and then keep the staff separate. And these are not easy things to do. Yeah. And it's not like there's going to be a day that comes where we flip the switch and it all goes back to normal. There's going to be months and months of transition. And maybe maybe we treat nursing homes differently from here on right. out. So I'm just... Yeah, I'm just going to invite you to say something different. I'm not sure what we should say, but we're not going back. 
and we're not going back to the old normal. Mm-hmm. So we want to move forward into something better. Yeah. Um, because uh, this this is not good. I'm not saying that this is not, we're in the midst of transition and it's painful, but may we be envisioning something um, something better. Um, I think many people are having an experience with home cooking, uh, with home entertainment, with home education. There's a lot of people are going to have an experience with home healing, um, and they're going to have some big feelings about whether they ever want to do that again. Some people are going to feel like, ooh, I'm not going back. Um, you know, we're going to keep moving forward this way. And other people are going to say, no, I'm not doing this anymore, but I want to do something better than what was there before. Right, right. And this is stepping back to that, that bigger question of, of what will the fundamental shifts be after this mm-hmm. for the generation living through this. And, you know, every day, you know, with all of the perhaps bad or grim news that I read, I also read about uh, so many wonderful grassroots community-led Mutual aid efforts, you know, the people sewing masks, um, the people here in our in our own city who are helping um, put the homeless into um, safe temporary shelters, uh, so that they don't right. get infected. Um, you know, yeah, so many maybe people we can are, move them into safe permanent shelters. Right, right, and so many people are just living into and embodying this better way of being, and right. I, I see it in this hopeful sense of uh, prefigurative politics, or, or rather, um, you know, wanting to embody those aspirations, those relationships, the culture that we, we want to aspire to. Right. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say is that these, this outline, which is the beautiful beginning of, you know, hospitals re, uh, reopening and doing all of what they do, uh, having enough tests, doing contact tracing, and um, sustained reduction in cases, um, I think anybody who understands anything knows that that's not going to be an overnight thing. And I think that many of us are realizing this is not a sprint, but a marathon. And we need to pace ourselves. That um, You know, there are plenty of people who are counting the days or the weeks of their um, social isolation. And whew, good good on you if that helps you. But, man, I just got to get up and just uh, we're doing one more day of it. Yep, one day at a time. Right, right. Um so that that's my best. Uh, I, I think that we've d- handled that well. Is there anything else? To, oh, I want to follow up. So I had a follow up question from yesterday's. You know, can the can we gather outside? And the answer is no. We cannot gather outside even if you stay far apart. And the follow up question was, well, you know, we were going to get together with the neighbors and um, remove invasive honeysuckle from a from a neighborhood. Um, area that needs that done. And and my answer is you may absolutely remove brush honeysuckle. That's a great thing to do. And you may absolutely, I would absolutely not recommend that you gather together to do it, that there is a lot of camaraderie in getting those things done together. And um, there's also people have a lot more flexible schedules. And so we don't have to all do it on the same day. And um, maybe we could, you could leave the um, equipment out in the sunshine so that we um, and then wash it off real well and then the next person could use it. That's going to help get rid of the poison ivy sap that's certainly on that equipment too. So mm-hmm. not together, but yes, go for it. Yeah. And I do want to take yeah. this opportunity to remind our listeners that we are uh, taking listener questions and comments. And so if you have yep. a question or comment, uh, we invite you to call the KOPN office 573 573- Eight seven four one one three nine, and you can leave that question on our answering machine. Uh, or if you prefer to email that question, you can send it to me at gm at kopn 
www.ecofaithchurch.org. Uh, we lo we love to hear from you, and we love to help uh, provide some clarity on these common questions uh, that we're all having right now. Yeah, and if you have symptoms of uh, COVID-19 and want to be tested, you can do that through the University Hospital on their website, muhealth.org, or you can go to my website, uh, com, or call my office, 443-7070, and we will get tested. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much and, for joining us this morning, Dr. Alleman. Yep. Uh, do, do we have, uh, do we know what's in store for the rest of the week? I Pulse? don't. I'm, I'm working on that as soon as I get off the phone. So we'll um, figure that out. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, we were okay. speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters, which airs every weekday morning here on KOPN. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Bye. Mm -hmm. And that is it for today's edition of Community Pulse, your local report and update on the coronavirus situation here in Mid-Missouri. We thank you so much for tuning in every weekday morning at 9 a.m. for this report. We are happy to bring it to you. It is our honor to bring you this community service. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate your attention and your support. Coming up next is an abridged version of background briefing. And once again, if you have questions that you'd like to submit to Dr. Alleman, please give us a call at 573-874-1139 or send me an email at gm at kopn.org and we'll address your questions on air and future broadcasts. Thank you and have a wonderful morning. <laughs>